and we'll especially be considering the first three verses of uh, chapter 42. I've already read them twice, um, so we don't need to read them in full again uh, right now. But the first three verses describe Christ in Isaiah's terms as the servant of the Lord. And we'll we'll mention a couple of things uh, that are put in, in verses 5, 6, and 7. Um, as they come out, but we're mainly looking at the first uh, three verses that describe the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mentioned this morning that even in chapter 1 of this long prophecy, that the promise given at the end of that that, um, litany of sins, that indictment, the promise to have the sins purged from their redness and crimson, and to be made white. I said to you that there was a shadow, really, of Christ in that verse. That the sacrifices they're bringing, and the way they're bringing them, and the condition of their hearts mean that the sacrifices they're paying for and presenting at the temple and that the priesthood offer on their behalf, this is not purging their sin. And I don't need to go into that. I think we all understand why that isn't purging their sin. Um because it's the heart that needs cleansed and they're not even doing it with the right spirit at all. But the uncleanness that the Lord speaks of in that chapter, the abomination, he calls it, their incense is an abomination. At the end of the prophecy, he says that those who are offering a lamb are offering it like a dog with a broken neck, which is a very cursed, unclean thing in that worship system. Those things are very ugly to us. And we would ask, how can those be remedied at all? They're so bad. And it's telling us that man is so bad. How can he who is not sound from the head, from the top of his head to the sole of his feet, a leper, how, how can he ever be clean once he's gone that far? Even how could the Lord clean him? Job says, who can bring a clean thing from an unclean thing? Well, that's why Isaiah just begins that way in the prophecy. He just lays out, it's almost a disgusting picture. And it immediately raises the question, with Israel as the servant of the Lord and the people of God in that condition, how can can this problem be remedied? How can this uncleanness become clean? And Isaiah is saying it is a big problem. And you remember we looked at about a month or two ago, Isaiah 6, that shows how pure God is. He's holy, holy, holy. So you see the way Isaiah begins. He's presenting this immense problem of uncleanness and God's holiness. The Holy One of Israel is Isaiah's um, favorite title for God. It's unique to Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel, he calls him. How can that be remedied? Well, the shadow of Christ begins to appear the moment God says, I will take your crimson dye the depth of its stain, and I will make you white. And we ask, well, how does that happen? It is through the servant that has begun to be promised. Now, Israel was proud that they were the servant, the light to the Gentiles and these things. But not them as the servant, which Isaiah calls them. He says, Jacob, my servant, I knew you from the womb and these things, but another servant. They were the type He is the antitype. 
He is the fulfillment and the embodiment of that promise that comes through Israel. And we see in this prophecy that it begins as a shadow, but Christ becomes clearer and clearer. And there's no one that presents Christ as clear as this man. That's why people say that the prophecy of Isaiah is the fifth gospel. Because he uniquely was given intimate sight and understanding of Christ. That we can read passages in Isaiah and even believe that John or Peter wrote them. That's how accurate and vivid the portrayal of Jesus is. So in chapter 1, Israel is not sound from head to toe. Israel is unclean. Israel is laden with iniquity and guilt. But in chapter 53, the Messiah, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. Our uncleanness is placed on him. And he is pierced for our transgressions, Israel says. And for our sins, he is crushed. And it pleased the Lord to crush him. And he will save us. So the answer to chapter 1 is chapter 53. The ugliness of chapter 1 appears again upon Christ. He is the ugly one in chapter 53. His visage was marred beyond that of a man. And we saw no beauty or comeliness that we should desire him. He is like a root out of dry ground. That's the answer. So that's who this servant is. And the special four sections that are called servant songs are called that because Isaiah gives him that title in each of those chapters. And here we see, behold, my servant. So he just comes out of nowhere, whom I uphold. And God's saying, this is not Israel. This is someone else. This is my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. And in these three verses, I, I want to see two things about God's elect servant. The elect servant upheld, and then the elect servant's care for us. So the elect servant upheld, and the elect servant's care. Let's see first of all, the elect servant upheld. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. Now this title, servant, this is not just someone who who is cleaning a house or helping out a family as a servant. You remember Abraham entrusted the finding of a wife for his covenant son. He entrusted that to his servant. And the servant was sent on that important journey, and the servant was led, and the servant was given the authority to choose and to, and to make a selection. Abraham trusted him. So if you see the difference in a biblical servant... That's the idea here about Christ. When he's titled in the Old Testament as the servant of God, this is someone who is entrusted with a very important task and who serves on behalf of the divine authority. He is sent from God. And though he's a man, he's given an immense task in which he is to serve and accomplish and to do something For the Lord God, my servant whom I uphold. That's why we capitalize these things, because this is the Son of God, and this service is important. Christ's um, task 
as the servant in the king's house or in the king's kingdom is to represent God the Father in an official position and to carry out his work. The work of purging sin, fulfilling God's law, revealing God's word, gathering and reconciling sinners to himself and upholding them and defending them. Ultimately, even to be exalted to an immensely high position in chapter 53, to go up and then to reign over God's kingdom. That's who this servant is. And these are the things that are part of what his service is. Notice also, as we see Jesus appear here as the servant of God, that this servant is chosen. Now we're looking here at him upheld, but before we can see that, he is chosen to this position. See the words there, my elect one or my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now this is an important truth and we maybe don't often think enough or it might surprise you when I read a passage like this, you know the words and you wonder, well, what does that mean? That, that Christ is elect. We're used to Paul using election and telling us that we are elect in Christ. But the word of God does say that Christ was elected to carry out redemption and salvation for the Trinity. Uh, for example, in, in 1 Peter 2, um, Peter uses this very language and he's speaking about God's people being elect. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Coming to Christ as to a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen or elect by God and precious. And you are living stones too, he says, built to a spiritual house. But it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion, he's quoting Isaiah, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now Peter's saying there that this special stone that is the Lord Jesus Christ was laid in Zion. And he says it is the chief cornerstone. It is elect and it is precious. That means God chose it. God chose to carry out redemption and to build a church, to build a kingdom. Christ was chosen, the Son of God was chosen and set apart to be the foundation stone of that immense work throughout history. Now when we're told here, my servant, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, the reference here is to Christ being chosen in the councils of eternity, in the council of the Trinity, in the covenant of redemption, as God then wills to carry out the covenant of grace and save us, he entered into a covenant with his son within the Trinity. And though father and son considered essentially and eternal are one and the same in nature and character, they are one God, father, son, and spirit, completely equal, no subordination, there's no authority of one over the other eternally in that sense. They're equal in power and glory. In terms of God, 
turning to enter into time and to create and save and carry out a work of redemption. The Son is appointed by the Father to be the Saviour. And the Father takes on the role of electing and purposing and willing the redemption. And the Holy Spirit is appointed to be the applier of that redemption. The Father purposing it, the Son executing it, and the Spirit taking the riches of that and then applying it to my soul and yours. That's what God has done. But before any of that takes place, the Father and the Son, not not to the... Not to the, to the removing of the Holy Spirit, but we, fo- we focus on the Father and Son because the Father takes the initiative in redemption and the Son, if we can put it this way, must agree to do all of this. Now Christ said, my will and my Father's will are one. I always do what pleases him. Me and my Father have been working until now. Their wills aren't against each other at all. They have the, the one divine will, but they are persons, three persons in the Trinity, And to save, there must be an agreement as to what that salvation will contain. I think that's what's referred to here. That when he says this servant is coming to die for his people, to carry out this immensely difficult task, I have chosen him. He was selected. He has agreed to carry this out. This is what is called the everlasting covenant by the prophets, like Jeremiah. The everlasting, the eternal covenant. Now, we know this took place, brothers and sisters, because we're told in the New Testament, for example, that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. That's how we know these things. Before God said, let there be light, and even created, the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. That is because the Father says to his Son, Um, will you save this people? Will you be incarnate? Will you take a body and soul to yourself? Will you unite a human nature distinctly to you as the second person of this trinity? Will you be born and live under the law? Will you gather a people around you? Will you bear the weight and receive the penalty for all their guilt and sin? Will you be punished? And will you receive the wrath of God, the wrath of Father, Son, and Spirit against sin? Will you do this? Will you die? And will you rise from the dead? This was clearly all planned in the will of God. And Christ, the Son of God, the second person, obviously is one at will with that and agrees to it. So that Father and Son and Spirit carry out redemption because of that will. He is my servant, but he is my servant because he is my elect one. So Christ agreed to all this. He embraced all this in the council of eternity. Now it is remarkable in itself that we have someone here titled a servant who agreed to all this. There are other servants in the Bible, but this servant, though he lowers himself to a state of humiliation, he is doing that as the son. 
And that's unusual. If God needs a servant, he chooses a servant and sends him. But this servant is a servant's son. And in the Trinity, he was appointed, though being a son, to a position of servanthood in which he's now under the authority of the Father. And he has to fulfill the law of God and he has to die a curse of death for his people. These are wonderful things. They're brought out in uh, this uh, prophecy and um, this should be fruit for our thought, obviously. I mean, how can we not think of this? To think of the implications of all of that, the love of God in doing this, the, the, the marvelous condescension of an eternal person who is beyond time and matter and all these things, who is in a state of I am existence, and he takes to himself all these things in his will, and it's all signed in covenant, in agreement, before the world is even created. The lamb, the needed sacrifice, the blood that matters, it was all settled before the foundation of the world. What comfort that is to us, how that should fill our minds with glory, and wonder and praise and thanksgiving that we even know anything about this and yet it is Paul tells us about it and I know as you're listening you may think well what if some of this is speculative and so on but these are established things in theology and Paul raises our minds and stretches our minds and when he could write to Ephesus he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, and by which he made us accepted in this beloved. Then he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, that God made to abound to us in all wisdom and prudence, to know the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, all things in heaven, and all things on earth. You see what Paul's saying there? I mean, he never, he didn't write like that in every one of his epistles, but he's, he's telling us to, to really raise ourselves up here, and to push ourselves, and to get beyond the, the trifles of this world, and to think about eternal matters. He's telling us that this was all in the will of God in the eternal counsel of the Trinity between Father and Son. And then when the dispensation of the fullness of times began to unfold, God began to action this will and gather everyone together through the blood of Christ. It's wonderful. The very one, our Savior, who is the eternal Son, the very one who willed it with his Father, the very one who has an eternal decree, our Savior, he then steps forth into time and he's the one that bears the sin and the body and the death and resurrection of that very decree. This is what John Owen called the. This is the greatest mystery and wonder in Christianity. That Christ could be incarnate and then die for us. That This is it, he says. He says in, in glory, in heaven, this is what we will focus on. This is what we will be taught in heaven. This is what Christ will preach to us about in the eternal kingdom. That when you look on the throne of the universe, you see the divine, but in it you see a lamb slain. 
when you look at the throne of God. So these things aren't uh, a waste of time to think about. This is, this is what they're doing in heaven. This is what knowing God is all about. This servant was chosen. He was elect to do all this. But once that happens, he is upheld. My servant, when he comes into this position, he needs upheld. We sometimes think of Christ as having all power because he's the Son of God. But part of the covenant was that he would live under the law as a man with the same abilities that Adam had. Christ doesn't come in and fulfill the law as a, just a perfect divine being. He has to fulfill it as a man who has real desires, real weaknesses. Christ thirsted, he hungered, his, his mind became tired. And these things, things that make us sin. Christ was subject to it all. Christ, um, he had to sleep because he was exhausted and, and these things. Um, Christ had emotions. God doesn't really have emotions, not like that. Christ has emotions. When someone disappointed Christ, when Judas disappointed him, or when Peter challenged him, Christ had an emotional reaction to that. He had real human emotions. He still does. Christ has to come under all of that. And to do it all, he doesn't do it as some superhuman um, person pretending to be a man and use drawing on his own divine nature and using that power from his childhood and even into his manhood and ministry and doing all these things with drawing from his own divine resources. He did all these things as a man under the law. But he needs upheld to do all of that. He clearly does. Yes, he needs upheld throughout his life from birth as he grows in wisdom and is taught by his mother and he learns, even from the community he's growing up in, he learns the Torah. There are even men that are teaching that, and Christ is willing to learn that. But he reads it himself. He must learn to read and these things. He needs upheld throughout his life, obviously, to remain obedient and to fulfill the law. But this upholding here, my servant whom I uphold, it does go through his life. But there is a special reference to his ministry. A special reference to his ministry, which he undertook at 30 years of age from the moment he assumed that office or was properly inaugurated into that office and that's what happened to Jesus you'll notice he's not teaching publicly before he's 30 you'll notice um, he's not performing any miracles before that point he's at home he's working he's living in the family context he's not going out and gathering disciples and proclaiming himself at all that changes when he's 30. Um, and he starts to do all these things that he needs a special upholding in and a special ability from God. For example, when he's 30 years of age, he's baptized by John the Baptist. But the baptism that really matters is the one that comes from heaven as that's happening. The Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form like a dove and alights upon him and imbibes him and fills him, saturates him as the Mishach, the Messiah, the one who is saturated, the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure in a way that no one prior to him had at all. And you'll remember um, that 
God the Father said to him when that happened. God the Father acknowledged and confirmed him that this is my son in whom I am pleased. He's acknowledging and declaring to Christ and to those watching that up until that point in Christ's life, he hadn't sinned, that he had done everything already that was pleasing. He was fulfilling the law up until that point. But something changes when he is baptized and he goes into his public messianic office. The pressure on him is huge. Uh, Satan and his kingdom surround him in a way that wasn't allowed before. As soon as he's baptized, he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. There are attacks upon him, spiritually, that he needs upheld from. He, um, he is given, during his ministry, greater insights in his mind and soul into the exact nature of what the sufferings will contain on the cross and the betrayal and the death and resurrection. He's, he didn't know all of that with the, with the same amount of detail when he was 15, for example. These are given to him as God saw fit progressively throughout his life. But especially in the final three years, his awareness, he began to say things like, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's, it's beginning to be unveiled for him the contents of all this and the immense attack and pressure that it will put on him. Now, he clearly needs upheld through all that. My, my servant whom I uphold, who I must uphold, and my elect one in whom my soul delights. And that upholding happens by the giving of the Spirit. That's why I'm describing his baptism to you. My elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So he needs that upholding. And we see in the Gospels that it, it does happen. For example, Matthew, Matthew 4, or Matthew 3. And behold, the heavens were opened, and Christ saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the trinity that I was talking about there in the covenant of redemption, that counsel appears here in time. It's all planned and willed. But when Jesus is anointed to officially be, become Messiah or to act out that office in a special way, he is endowed with the Spirit and then the Father speaks. So you see the three persons who have willed this acting together to bring it to pass. And Jesus, as man, he needs the Spirit. He needs the Holy Spirit to carry out this great work for you and me. He needs it to teach. Uh, he needs it to obey. He needs it to carry out miracles. He needs it to unveil the Word. He needs it to have the strength and determination and steadfastness to minister to hundreds and sometimes thousands of souls even in one day, just to go on and to spend himself in that service. He needs it to be upheld in Gethsemane when Satan comes in the strongest way, I think, that Satan ever has in this world. Even more so than Eden, even more so than the wilderness when Christ met him there. 
when Satan met Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a mortal combat going on. And, and the Father removes the light of his countenance, and Jesus is pressured, and he needs upheld. When he's being scourged, when, he, when he's being interviewed by the Sanhedrin and blasphemed and spat upon, the immense restraint he must show, the wisdom and the clarity he must have to outwit these, these men and remain just and to speak the right word. He needs upheld through all this. His disciples desert and Christ is left surrounded by the bulls of Bashan and the lion's mouth and the oxen with horns. And he needs upheld through all that and then on the cross itself as the pressure of eternal wrath and punishment for the litany of sins in a, in a life as long as mine and yours. When the guilt of those sins and the true punishment for them are then carried out and then laid and inflicted upon him, he needs upheld. He needs upheld. And Isaiah tells us that my servant whom I uphold, I put my spirit upon him. Isaiah tells us that the key to that upholding is the Holy Spirit. For example, in chapter 11, here's a famous prophecy, um, two verses, Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And delight, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide with the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and by the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. There's Jesus. Isaiah said long before chapter 42, early in his ministry, Isaiah already knows that the Messiah will be anointed in an immensely unique way by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah knew he had been anointed by the Spirit. Isaiah knew Moses and David had been anointed by the Spirit. But here Isaiah says it's a sevenfold anointing. There are seven things there. It shall rest upon him. Uh, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. The Spirit shall rest upon him. Isaiah puts seven statements together in the Jewish mind, fullness and perfection. The sevenfold spirit anointing him in the Jordan. And he rises from the Jordan filled as a man in humil who is in a state of humiliation and weakness, but filled as a human with the fullness of the Holy Spirit that gives him understanding, counsel, might and strength, knowledge and the fear of God and these things. So Christ then goes on for those three years, an immense traveling ministry in the countryside to the heart of the city of Jerusalem at the temple and everything in between from the Pharisee and the theologian and the tax collector and the leader of the synagogue to the prostitute and the demoniac and the leper. Christ is all the time he is ministering. And the Holy Spirit is upholding this servant as he does all of this. He lays down to sleep or he knows the Pharisees are plotting as we read in Matthew 12. And he removes himself 
but the crowds follow him. And he heals them, Matthew says, all. Hundreds of people. Thousands of people. And then he says, don't tell anyone I did this. The last thing Christ needed was 10,000 people or so telling the whole of Israel that the Messiah is about to take the throne and look at his healings. Christ strangely says, don't tell anyone I did this. This will just complicate things because I'm not here to take the throne. My hour has not come. I'm here to die. I'm here to step, keep stepping on this path until crucifixion uh, takes hold of me. And he says, don't tell anyone. And Matthew says, aha, this is exactly what Isaiah said he would do. This, the one who has upheld the servant of the Lord, he is upheld by the spirit of the Lord and he'll work in humility and grace as he carries this out, as he loves these people. But do you see that then? He is baptized in Matthew 3. Isaiah 11 tells us it's a sevenfold endowment of the spirit. He needs it for all his obedience, his prayer life, his miracles, his word and his ministry to souls. Consider, Isaiah says this in another chapter. Um, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good things to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus' preaching was part of this upholding his understanding of the scriptures, the light in his mind, was all given by the Holy Spirit. And the strength and unction with which he could declare it and transmit it as he taught, they, they all knew he had authority. Remember that? They, they, they saw this. Even the unbelievers saw he has authority. It was all from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has anointed me to preach. Christ even needed that. In his ministry to souls, chapter 50 says, he has enabled me, Christ says in chapter 50, to speak a word in season to him who is weary. The Spirit of God gave Christ that, and so on. There you have it then. All those parts of Christ's ministry needed this upholding. Though he was the elect one, though he is the Son of God, as we approach the Lord's Supper this week, let us remember that Christ as a man did all of this day by day and hour by hour throughout his life and especially in his ministry being upheld by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say something when I close about how the Lord then upholds us. But there you have it. He is upheld. The elect servant is upheld. Look at the comfort just as we leave this upholding. Look at the comfort that God gives Jesus here. Um, even in the first phrase. Jesus is 30 and he picks up the prophecy of Isaiah. You remember when Jesus first preached in Nazareth, the leader of the synagogue handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah because it was, it was that time to read Isaiah. But Jesus could choose whatever he wanted to turn to in the prophecy. And he, Jesus flipped through the scroll until he came uh, to chapter uh, 61. You see how Jesus read Isaiah. He knew Isaiah. He had learned it. 
And just think of this, the comfort to Jesus when he picks up this prophecy and read it, this chapter. It's a promise to him. My servant, I uphold. It tells him that he will be upheld. Look at the other comforts the Father gives him in verse 6 and 7. When Jesus is struggling, when, when Christ is feeling that pressure and he's animated and disturbed by his disciples, by Judas, um, have I not chosen you but one of you is a devil? Jesus is burdened about that. When, when they come to him in unbelief and they can't cast out demons or the Pharisees are showing such uh, a wrong understanding and a viciousness and he says, you evil an adulterous generation, how long shall I bear with you? This was hard for him. Who could Jesus speak to and they would understand? Really? John? Peter? Who could he speak to? Only his father. And when he reads this, Verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. What a comfort to him. I will uphold you. I will keep you. I will hold you by the hand. We enter into these things at the communion, at the Lord's Supper. We must think of our Savior. Does this not give us an insight into the person whom we love and what he experienced? He did all this alone, friend, for you. Alone. Bearing the guilt of your sin, knowing it all his life. And and he never flinched from it. He never went the other way for us unclean people. And he went all the way. And just remember... He did all that for you and he did it absolutely alone. The comfort he had really was this. That the father is saying to him, keep going, go on. I am with you, I am holding you and I have called you and you will bring this to pass. You will accomplish this. I'm not saying Jesus doubted any of this. I'm just talking about the reality of the difficulty that the Messiah is feeling and experiencing, and his Father comforts him when necessary. So, he is upheld, he's chosen and upheld, as he carries out this office. The elect servant upheld. Then we see, lastly, the elect servant's care. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break smoking flax he will not quench why is he chosen why is he upheld through 30 years and then 3 years of, of that messianic ministry why why does God put so much into that why does he pour the spirit into Christ why is Christ going around Judah and Perea and Galilee and doing all of this why because of the sinful people who must be saved. The sinful people he's there to save. The very reason God willed all this into being an action. And look at his care and the manner in which he does it. 
He doesn't cry out, raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, Christ did cry out. Christ sometimes was heard on the street or in the wilderness. He did raise his voice and cry out. Um, and he did make himself heard when it was necessary. It's not saying here he never did these things, but it's saying this is not the character of his ministry. That's what it's saying. He's not one who's characterized as crying out all the time or raising the message or causing his voice to be heard in the street. Now you see that in Christ's ministry. He's remarkably restrained. I've already said to you, he often hid himself. He went to unknown deserted places by choice most of the time. When he went to Jerusalem, he didn't come with fanfare and announcement. He would just go to the temple on the day that was suitable and he would just begin to teach. And then the word would spread. He would command people to not spread or repeat what he'd said or done. He healed people and said, don't tell anyone I healed you. What is all this telling us? Why, why is God bringing the, this part out here? Because it's showing us the immense tenderness and humility of Christ, even though he's the greatest servant who was ever sent. How different he is to a Babylonian or a Syrian king or a Roman uh, centurion or a Roman emperor. How different he is. He's coming to do this great thing, but he does it in a self-effacing way. He does it in a wise way. He often does it incognito. He, he does it quietly. He does it in surprising ways. It's telling us Christ isn't proud. He isn't ostentatious. Um, he doesn't raise himself up and, and unnecessarily slam down upon people for no reason. It's telling us about his character. This is not a, a pushy, violent uh, ruler. This, this is not a king who goes out over the Roman Empire and just annihilates everything in his wake. He's the complete opposite. Judah must learn this. They were violent, remember, we saw this morning. They'd begun to embrace that character. But when the divine Messiah, the true character of God, appears, look at the way God is. In other places in Scripture, God says, lift up your voice, Ezekiel. Or this morning, he said, hear, O heavens and earth, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. God will declare himself. But then you look and you see Jesus Christ saying, I am the Messiah and the Son of God. And he's behaving so, uh, so uh, in such a low way. I am meek and low of heart, he says. You will find rest for your souls. It's just telling us that he is a loving, tender, careful, gentle person. That doesn't mean he's weak. We all know that the church takes that today and they present a weak Christ to people. A Christ who grovels for their attention. A Christ who's okay with all our sin. And a Christ that never rebukes anyone. We know that's a lie, don't we? But we must retain that Christ, when you consider how much power he actually has and how holy he is and how clear his righteous mind is, he shows an, a remarkable restraint in dealing with sinners, in dealing with his people especially. He show, considering how great he is, 
his gentleness with us at times is utterly remarkable for someone so strong. This is his character. Gentle, not weak. That's why he doesn't go around shouting, raising his voice. He speaks a word in season to him as weary. He finds ways of speaking to us that are incognito. A still small voice. He finds ways of speaking to us. He finds a way into our life through the word and through providence and these things. And he deals with us gently. Now there come times where he must be firm. But that's against the backdrop of us knowing this compassionate, uh, the, the meekness of his dealings with us. And as we bring these things to a close, um, the picture painted by Isaiah here of how that character works is in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Now there you have it. This servant who's appointed and upheld and who is the son of God from all eternity. And he's carrying out this ministry and he's given the Holy Spirit an immense endowment. We see the character of him and the Spirit as they work. That they're surprisingly wise, gentle, careful when they need to to be and Isaiah draws a picture here of immense Hebrew poetry of detail and picture that he selects things that he's seen to convey to us the love and compassion of Christ for my soul and yours that a reed at the side of the river reeds are weak reeds are easily snapped they're easily bruised and bent. The reeds are just there at the side and they stand tall and the reeds say, we're here. But if you go over to a reed and just pull at it, it's hollow, it can easily be broken. The smoking flax, um, the piece of material that would be put inside a lamp that's filled with oil and you light the piece of material, the wick, the material wick, and you light it and it needs trimmed. It needs trimmed at points because it burns and then it goes charred and black and you need to cut off that part, pull it up and trim so that it can burn again. And Isaiah is saying here that what happens with these wicks is they burn and if you leave them alone and you don't trim them when you should, then they just become black and charred and then they begin to give off smoke rather than light and they give off a stench too in the room. And that's them about to go out. And if you leave them, they just will go out. These two images are given to us of the way Christ uh, works. Now, this is true of us as we close this out tonight. This is true for us as we approach the Lord's Supper and we want to know Christ better and we, we want to meditate upon him and know his nearness and his intimacy. That these two things, the bruised reed and the smoking flax, the bruised reed may be bruised by its own doing. This is Christ's care for us. You may be a bruised reed and I may be because of our own doing. We're, we're doing things that are unwise and we end up being damaged or hurt because of it. And 
it may be at the hands of others. We can be bruised. And like that, we've snapped a bit and ready to snap completely. And we feel that way. We may have fallen into sin because Satan has been at work and he has deceived us. Or we have willfully gone into sin. And then we understand the guilt and the consequences of the sin. Or the reed may be bruised because of the Lord's own chastisement and correction. When the Lord chastens us, that's not easy. When he shows us our sin and corrects us in our life or puts a chastisement in our life and things begin to fall apart or something cuts across the, the plans we have and the wonderful life we're going to build for ourselves and something cuts across that and it stings and it hurts and it breaks our heart. The bruised reed, no matter what has caused this, the, the soul, the Christian soul who's looking for their Messiah in these songs says, I am like a reed and I feel quite, quite broken. Uh, there is damage here. My hope and my encouragement and my steadfastness, I feel broken. I feel ready to snap. Well, Isaiah tells us he will not break something that delicate. That's how careful this servant is, this carer of souls, this Messiah. He doesn't go around breaking the bruised reeds in the church who are broken by their sin, who know something of it, who are humble and contrite and feel broken. He doesn't break them and finish them. And the, the, the smoking flax, that flax may be smoking because of sheer negligence on our part, because we're not trimming the wick. We don't, we're not bringing extra oil, as the foolish virgins didn't, and they weren't ready for the bridegroom. We're not attending to the lamp. And the lamp is lit, and Christ gives us some grace and some encouragement and some task to do for him, and we do it well, and the light, it's burning. And we say, oh, it'll be like that for six months. It'll burn away. And then we neglect it. And then we look at it a few months later and, oh, it's not burning now. The wick hasn't been trimmed. The oil hasn't been replaced. It's not giving off the lustrous light that a Christian should. And even it starts to burn and it starts to give off smoke and a bit of a, a stench. And others can see that in you, the way you act and the, the, the way you speak and so on. They say, oh, there's a bit of burning there. Well, the Christian is weak. The Christian falls. The Christian reed is bent. The Christian flax is neglected. And what does Christ do with the weakness of his people? Which is part of the whole point of salvation. I mean, did he not come to justify and save a weak people that, that have these sins of negligence and so on? This tells us that Christ is careful. He sees these things in us and he gives it some time and he comes and he does what's necessary. It matters to Christ where a person is at. It matters to them what they've heard before, how much they've learned, what stage of the Christian life they are at. It matters to him what circumstances led to the stumbling and how they've been treated and so on. It, it matters to Christ if a person is mourning their foolishness and sin and they're not being stubborn about it and they're acknowledging to him, I failed here. Please, for forgive me. I can't believe I've done these things and please restore me. These things matter to Christ. He knows 
when we are weak and tired. He knows when we've neglected certain things. He knows when a soul has been dashed upon the rocks of a situation or upon this world or when the world is just beginning to consume and exhaust the Christian. Christ handles with care. He doesn't snap any bruised reed who's a true Christian. And when he sees someone's wick about to go out because of negligence on these things, he comes towards it and he cuts the, the wick and he adds oil and he brings it back to light. That's our life. That's what happens. And when the reed is bent, and there's a, a group of reeds by the river and one's bent over and it's about to fall, he, 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 he lifts it back up and he ties a string around it and straightens it up so that it can grow properly. Do you see all of this about Christ? You see it in his ministry, and we see it now. This is, he knows we're here, and he knows we're worshipping him. And he is, um, he's, this is the way he, he is viewing it. And he knows each of our weaknesses. And isn't it wonderful that this immense servant ministers this way towards us? And he will make sure that we are healthy again. He will make sure that we give off the light we must. And if we're neglecting that, he'll chastise us. If we're broken because we're breaking ourselves all the time, he will chastise us so that we learn the lesson. But he will then fix us. He'll fix that break and so on. So just see that, my brother and sister. Um where Christ sees genuine faith in that reed or in that wick. Real faith, if it's become small and weak, a real faith and love for him, it is precious to him. And he preserves it. And he ministers to it. And he protects it. That's the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That they will persevere with the upholding and help of Jesus Christ, their minister and their Messiah. Now just as I finish here, our sanctification and faith can become very weak at points in our life. And as we approach this Lord's Supper, use the time as we delve into God's Word and see the glory of Christ in each of these servant passages in Isaiah and these things. Use the time to look upon Him to examine yourself as I examine myself, as we're told in Scripture. Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith and see where your soul is. And pray to him and ask him to show you what things are going wrong, what things are being neglected, what parts of your soul and Christian character and so on have uh, some degeneration in them and these things. Just ask him and go to the word and read his word and read his law as we saw this morning and interact with him in this way and you will find that this is someone who loves his people better than any husband or wife or father or mother and he will come and sometimes he will tell us hard things if he has to but it will never be at the expense of a tender and patient and gentle love isn't that wonderful? He was chosen and upheld by the Spirit. And he ministers to us here in the second half of the poem. 
because he was upheld and filled with the Spirit, he is now the one who comes to us and upholds us by the Spirit who is in us. Do you see that? The Father helped him. Now Christ is upholding us. For as he is filled with the Spirit, the head and the body, Jesus Christ and his body is bright. He is upheld and he is upholding us. I want you to say something about John Bunyan. As we close here, there's a scene in the Pilgrim's Progress book that wonderfully shows this. When the Christian goes into a house and there's a wall in the middle of the house and there's a fireplace in the wall and that is the Christian's life, the Christian's soul and their spiritual health. And he sees these characters throwing water on the fire. And Bunyan tells us that is Satan and his demons. Pouring water on any light and any life that Christ is giving us. And they're pouring water and you're expected to go out. But they keep pouring water and the fire never goes out. They just And they, they pour more and more water. And then after that, Christian goes behind the wall. And there is a man standing who Bunyan later tells us is actually Christ. And he has a vial of oil that through the wall and imperceptibly to anyone else, he is pouring oil on the fire. As Satan is pouring water on the fire. And Satan cannot destroy the Christian's life and love and joy and the flame of their love and obedience. Let's take that with us. As much as you and I must must follow Christ and do these things, let's remember that when we're there and Satan would have us be broken or our wick to go out, let us remember that Jesus Christ is there and he is absolutely in control of it and he will keep that fire going for his true elect souls. May God bless these thoughts uh, to us on his uh, holy word.